Terrific. All right, so Dave has asked me to speak on the subject of parenting. Uh, let me start you off, please, with a quote from Mark Twain, who said, When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. That's more than just a humorous quote. Uh, it is a profound truth that says that good parents uh, do not do what they do in order to gain the approval and the applause of their foolish children. Uh, they do what they do because they know it to be true. They know it to be right. And their children, they believe, will come to the same conclusion in time. Solomon put it this way in Proverbs 22.6, Train up or raise up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. But what Mr. Solomon and what Mark Twain assume is that fathers and mothers know the way which is right and wise and good. They know the way to go. I don't think that we can make that assumption in 21st century America. So with that in mind, what I would like to do is I would like to give you eight actions to consider in raising your children. Now, as I look out among you, I see that some of you do not have children. I look out among you and I see that some of you are not currently raising children. Uh, even if this categorically does not fit you, uh, it will in some way be applicable to you. First of all, because the church is the body of Christ and we don't want to compartmentalize, so the information that you'll receive perhaps will be assistance to you as you assist others. Maybe one day you will be a parent, and maybe there's something that you can remember from the lesson this morning which will be a benefit to you, and more importantly, will be a benefit to your children, and even more importantly, uh, will be a blessing in the kingdom of God. Uh, let me just say this. I'm going to give you eight points. Uh, each of the points are very convoluted. Uh, they're probably not even grammatically correct, uh, but they are expressive enough in and of themselves that if you were just to listen to the English words that I say, even without me expounding upon the point, you will have enough information to go and to do something. Uh, let me also say this. The list that I'm going to give you is not uh, an exclusive list. It's not a thorough list. Uh, it, is a, uh, it is a very limited list. It happens to be my list. That doesn't even mean that it's the best list. In fact, I probably could have picked other topics that were better than this. But what I did is that I picked out some topics which Anna and I used as we were raising our children. Now, that is not to say that these things which I am about to share with you, uh, that we mastered or even that we did them well. In fact, I would even go far as to argue that much of what I am about to say has been learned through failure and through defeat, through uh, sin and through error. Uh, and I learned it through the, the school of hard knocks. And what I mean by that is, what I'm about to share with you is not some theory that I drew up in a laboratory, uh, but I have gathered this from actual experiences of either being a child and being raised or raising my own children. So it's going to be uh, in many ways anecdotal. It's going to be in many ways very, very practical. That is not to say that I am in any way preaching myself. I am uh, preaching Christ. But I'm using myself and my life as examples of things that the Lord has used uh, with my wife and myself in raising our children and the way that my parents raised me and some observations that I have seen from other, from other parents. Uh, let me put out a disclaimer at the very beginning and say what you do not want to do, first of all, is you do not want to take the things that I say and match them to your family in an apples-to-apples -apples way. Uh, I think many of the mistakes that I made as a parent is that I would see a family that was doing things really well, and that what we would do is we would try to copy that exact same, same thing, 
and put it into the Moore family, and uh, it didn't work because we weren't them and they were not us. So you are not the Moore family. Uh, you are not the Kennedys. Uh, you are not the Kardashians. Uh, you're not the Manning family. You're not even the Manson family, okay? You are your family. And so what you need to do is you need to listen to what I'm going to say and then apply it as it applies to you. Uh, the other thing that I would say is I think you would be very foolish this morning to listen to all of these points and then to try in some way to apply all of them uh, immediately in your family. In fact, I, I think that that would probably do you more harm than good. I think it would be a very successful Sunday school hour if you were to take one point or even one sub point and to begin to apply it in your family and by grace uh, just maybe take it as the Lord leads you by the Holy Spirit. So this is not meant to be a wholesale change in your family. Uh, it's not meant for you to apply everything. Last thing I'll say before we get to the, uh, the points here is that I have um, some familiarity with this church and the familiarity that I have with this church uh, leads me to believe that I should not be the one that should be teaching this lesson, but many of you uh, are far more qualified than I am to, to teach this lesson. And the reason that I say that is because I see the way that you have raised your children. I have spent time with them at Camp Impact. I've spent time with them in our visits here. And um, I, I'm just not sure that I'm going to be able to say that much, which is going to be that much help to you. Uh, I am more encouraged by what you are doing than what I myself have done. And so uh, you have been taught well, uh, you have been pastored well, and you are applying well. But maybe, maybe there's something that you can get out of this lesson uh, which will be a benefit to your family. Uh, the clock on the wall is not going to allow us to have questions, but I would say at the conclusion or after the sermon today, if you want to talk, ask questions, um, uh, challenge me, anything you want to do, uh, I'm happy to talk to you about that. With that rather lengthy introduction, let me begin with our first point. And you will notice, once again, with all of the points, not only are they long and convoluted, but they, are, uh, they all begin with the word use. And the reason the word use is used up front is so that you will be doers of the word. They are designed so that you can immediately do something with the information. Stacy, was a handoff, handout runoff, uh, did, did everyone get one? Could an usher assist with getting those to anybody who has not uh, yet received one? Raise your hand and Matt will pass one out to you if you didn't get one on the way in. Here we go, point number one. Use expressive words with obnoxious frequency in order to communicate love. Use expressive words with obnoxious frequency in order to communicate love. In other words, talk with your children, talk with them all the time, and as you are talking with them, let there be no doubt whatsoever that you love them and that they know that you absolutely adore them. Let's use as our example the greatest father that has ever been, and that is God, our Heavenly Father. He, in speaking to his son with his relationship with his only begotten Jesus, would frequently, verbally, and publicly, unashamedly say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He said it at the baptism of Christ. He said it at the transfiguration. He said it um, in uh, John chapter 12. In his relationship also with his children, he communicates with words. So we have a Bible. The Bible is 1189 chapters, and in it, he repeatedly tells us with explicit words that he loves us. For God so loved the world. Uh, 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner or what type of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God. God is love and he loves his children. 
God demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that God loves me. He, I know that he loves me because he shows that me that he loves me. But the point I'm trying to make right now is I know that he loves me because he frequently in the Bible tells me that he loves me. I can't tell you the number of people who have said one of the following things to me. They will say something like this. I know that my father loved me, but I never actually heard him say it. I know that he loved me because he would go uh, to work every day and he would bring home a paycheck and he would provide for us. I know that he loved me because he cared for me when I was sick, but I never actually heard my father say that. And my question is, why not? Why was it never said? And it's usually with fathers, but sometimes it's with mothers as well. And the answer that I will get is, well, I'm old school, or I wasn't raised that way, or I myself am not an expressive person, to which I would say, old school is bad school. And being quiet and being reserved is both sinful and destructive. Furthermore, I will hear this all the time. I will hear people saying, I have spent my entire life trying to please my parents, and I never know if I actually have accomplished that goal. Uh, if your children sometimes are struggling with whether or not you are pleased with them or whether or not you love them, you could eliminate that very quickly, eliminate that doubt very quickly by using uh, expressive words with obnoxious frequency in order to communicate love. So let me tell you about uh, my father. I was raised, I think, almost due south of here uh, in a little town called Dubois, Pennsylvania. Uh, my father was born in 1926. When my dad was six months old, his father left him. Now, you have to understand what life was like in western Pennsylvania in 1926. There was no war going on, so there were no men going off to war at this point. And you need to understand that people then, for whatever reason, did not get divorced. They did not get separated. My dad, quite literally, was the only little boy in his community who did not have a father. You would think that because my father never had a father that he would, have, he would have no idea on how to be a father. But yet my father was an excellent father. He was a wonderful father. And he would always tell me every day, several times a day, that he loved me. Every night before I would go to bed, he would come into my bed and he would kiss me on the forehead. And he would say, God bless this boy from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. And then he would get down and he would, he would kiss me on the cheek. And I can still remember, uh, you know, my dad had one of those, like, uh, those, those, those beards that would, like, he'd shave in the morning, but by noon it would, would start to come out. And I just remember it felt like sandpaper. And he would get down and he would kiss me on the cheek and he would tell me all the time that he loved me. Now, it, when you're a child, you don't know what things are like in other families. I just assumed that in every family, the parents were always telling the children uh, that they loved them. And I can remember as uh, a little boy, I would be playing on the floor or uh, just playing with toys or whatever, and my dad would be sitting in a chair and he would say, here, get over here, come here, stand right here. And I, he would be sitting in the chair and I would be, I don't know, six or seven years old and I would stand in front of him and he would look at me and he'd go, now you look at me, you listen to me. I want you to know that I love you. I want you to know that, that I adore you, and I am so glad that you are my son. And, I, you know, I'm just standing there listening. It's like, it sounds normal to me because I don't know any other life. And you go, all right, now go, go play. And, but it wasn't just, you know, something that he did every once in a while. He did it many times a day throughout the course of my life. And so my father died at the age of 66, of this really wonderful heart attack. Uh, and like if I could sign up for this, I would really, I would, I, would, I would take it right now. He was in his bed, he died so quickly, the covers weren't even ruffled. And being a pastor who has spent a lot of time in hospitals with people as they're dying, and I see the struggles that they go through, it's just like, 
give me the heart attack. I, 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 I want the heart attack. And he just dies at age 66. Um, at that point, I'm only 31 years old. And, you know, I miss my father. Um, I think about him all the time. I even dream about him sometimes as though he is alive. But I'll tell you one thing about my father, which is not, which, which has never happened. I never have ever once in my life thought, you know, I wish that I could just have one more conversation with him so that I could just tell him what I thought of him and have him tell me what he thought of me. Because he told me every day of my life. He used uh, expressive words about love with obnoxious frequency and he communicated that love to me. And you say, well, that really hasn't been my custom. I mean, that's not really how we communicate with one another. I would challenge you and say, uh, first of all, I, I think you're wrong. Uh, I think we should use the breath that we have to communicate love toward one another. And I don't care if your son or your daughter is five or if they're 50. Uh, I think you should be expressing that love toward them. And it's not like, you know, the sex talk where, you know, you, you okay, we got to have that talk with Eddie and it's, come on, let's, let's go get it over with. Well, we got to have that love talk. Well, son, you know, I just want you to know that, you know, your mother and I think a lot of you and I just, don't you know, it's like, what? Like, what are you saying? No, no, real clear. I love you. I love you. And, and to, to, to say it all the time. <clears throat> Number two, the least spiritual of all the points, and that is use creative actions with enthusiastic spontaneity in order to create memories. If I were to omit a point, this would be the one that I would omit. It's not terribly spiritual, but what it basically means is have fun. Have fun in your family. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3, 4, there's a time to laugh and a time to dance. And I think the family is the place where this should be seen the most. And let me explain why. Moving from the spiritual or the eternal, to the here and now. If heaven is our real home, and if heaven is a place of unspeakable joy, should we not model for our children in our here and now homes that our here and now home should be a place of joy and happiness? I, I, I think the family is a picture of the gospel. The family is a picture of heaven. And, and I don't think that the emphasis in the family should be, we just got to get the stuff done that we have to get done. Now, you do have to get the stuff done that you need to get done. But more than that, I think the aim and the goal of the family is that it would be a place of joy. And that your strategy should be, I am excited about this family, and I want my children to be excited about this, fa this family. It is the place to be. And so what we have done in order to try, and let me just say this about trying. Parents will try to do things which will be fun for their children, and often, and I would even say quite often, it will be a colossal swing and a miss. Like, that was so lame. I don't want to do that. Why do we have to do that? It's, it's, so you're, you're going to have some failures along the way, but you should try. So one of the things that we've done over the years is at the end of every day, we would speak to our children and we would say, tell us the three best things about today. Uh, why? Uh, it gets them to reflect. It gets them to be thankful. Uh, there are traditions which we have formed in the family. So, for example, every year on the night before opening day in baseball, wherever any member of our family uh, happens to be at that time, and I have a son in Georgia, a son in North Carolina, a daughter in Kentucky, and another daughter in Georgia, wherever they happen to be on the night before opening day, we will watch 
Field of Dreams, the baseball movie. Have you seen that movie? You've seen the movie? Well, you're just, you're just a bad church. Uh, yeah, yeah. We will, we will watch that. Um, uh, we will, uh, on the 4th of July every year, we will all wear Old Navy T-shirts which match awkward family photos. We will form a tradition of going to Central Park every year on the 4th of July. We will sometimes, we would do this often when the kids were growing up, around Christmas time, out of nowhere, unplanned, after dinner, I would say, everybody hop in the, in the van, we are going to go to the widows of the church and we're gonna sing Christmas carols uh, on, their, on their front stoop. Just doing things which are crazy, doing things which are spontaneous, doing things which really don't require uh, a lot of money. Let me tell you, you can get more mileage out of a family wrestling match on the bed than you can out of going to Disney World. And I, my father would always tell me, he goes, you know, Ed, if, if you just think about how you feel about things that happen, oftentimes the things which you plan for the longest and you spend the most amount of money on and that you worry about don't in actuality end up being as fun or enjoyable or as memorable as the things which you just stumble upon, which are either free or, or very inexpensive. And so what I wanted my children to do is to understand that the family was the place to be and it was important for us to be together. So I can remember back in 2005, the Mets were in a pennant race which meant that they were about 20 games out of first place and they had won three in a row. Uh, and, and they happened to be playing the Phillies one night and I took my two sons who were young at the time to the Mets game and we were losing the whole game and it was hot and, and it was just like, what are we even doing here? And lo and behold, a backup catcher for the Mets that night in the eighth inning hits a three-run homer and the Mets end up beating the Phillies that night. And I had a moment of clarity, not like an AA moment of clarity, but a moment of clarity, and I thought, this is wonderful. This is our World Series. Like, it's not going to get any better than this. And so I wanted to communicate to my sons, this is a big night. You're still living at home. I'm still alive. We're still healthy. Our team won. Let's capture the moment. And so we went to the Lemon Ice King of Corona to get an Italian ice. And as we are standing there at the counter, me with my sons, feeling good about the win, a man walks up that I didn't even know, standing beside me, and he's getting ready to order. And I said, no siree, pal, not tonight. Your money's no good here tonight because I'm paying and the reason I'm paying is because my team won tonight and I'm with my sons and we are here to celebrate. And so you got 31 flavors up there, pal. Just pick whatever one you want and I'm paying. And I laid down the dollar and 50 cents and I said, it's on me. Why did I do that? Because I was trying to impress this man. I didn't care anything about that man at all. I wanted to, <laughs> I, I wanted to impress upon my sons that we were together and that this was a big deal and to accentuate that. Your idea of fun, my idea of fun might be entirely different. But if your home is just drab and boring and you're not even putting forth any kind of an effort for joy and delight in the home, why should your children want to be home? Make your home the place to be. And home, if it is a picture of heaven, is a place of delight. Number three, use fervent prayer with tenacious persistence in order to convey humility. Uh, it's very simple. Humble people pray and arrogant people do not. You want your children to be humble. You want your children to pray. You do not do that by telling them to pray. You do that by praying, by 
exemplifying a prayer life in front of them. And so what you do is you pray with them and you pray for them and you teach them to pray. And the way that you teach them to pray is not by thanking God with the same identical prayer before every meal, but it is praying throughout the day as circumstances arrive. The vehicle is getting ready to leave the driveway. Parker, would you please lead us in prayer, asking God to protect us as we drive. We're heading toward church. Charlie, would you please pray for me? I'm preaching this morning. Would you pray for me? The phone rings. Someone has been taken to the hospital. Mrs. Mull is in the hospital right now. Savannah, would you please pray for her? Anything that comes up, you just need to be praying without ceasing, and prayer needs to be something which is naturally happening in the house. Again, I can speak to my father as a man of prayer who would really live out uh, pray without ceasing. I remember, I remember um, he would go different places to preach. He was not a preacher, he was a radio announcer, but he would substitute preach at different places. And so as he would go to little churches, little rural churches in western Pennsylvania, sometimes he would take me with him. And it was his practice everywhere that he would go when he would, when he would prepare to, to preach, he would go into the men's room of the church and he would get down on his knees and he would pray and he would say, God, please help me. I really need you to fill me with your spirit and assist me as I preach this word tonight. Listen, it's one thing to tell your kids that they should pray, but it's another thing just to see your dad on his knees in a, in a, in a public restroom crying out to God. That is what makes an impression upon you. And the Bible says that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. My father, again, was a radio announcer. And back then, radio stations were not 24 hours. You had to go to the station and what was known as sign on. So, so you would sign on in the morning, and then the radio station would run until about 11 o'clock at night, and then they would play the Star Spangled Banner. They would sign off, and they were off in the middle of the night because who, who was listening to the radio in the middle of the night? So his job was to sign on, which meant if his show began at 5 o'clock, he had to get there long before 5 o'clock in order to sign the, sta the, the station on. Well, what he would do, he would make it his practice to... to read his Bible and pray three times a day. One of those times was before he went to work. And he would write his prayer list in the inside cover of his Bible. Like he would, the people he was praying for, he would write it. And, and, and I always noticed, or I would hear him pray for, for Archie Mitchell and Dr. Gerber and Dan Vietti. And I thought, like, who are these people? Like, I, I grew up thinking that they were, like, relatives of ours. I didn't know. And when I got to be old enough, I said, Dad, who are these three people that you pray for every day? And he said, they were missionaries in Vietnam who were abducted in 1962, and they have disappeared, and they have not reappeared, and we have no idea where they are. And I said... Do we even know if they're alive? And he said, they're probably, he said, they're probably dead. He said, but in case they're not, I want to pray for them every day. And, and so they disappear in 1962. My dad dies in 1992. And every day, multiple times a day, he prayed for these three mission, missing missionaries that, that were taken um, in the, in the Vietnam War, or just prior to the Vietnam War. And, and I just think to myself, yeah, you, you can, you know, you can say, you know, prayer is important, but unless you yourself pray, I don't think you're really going to communicate the importance of that to your, to your children. And so, so pray as to uh, teach your children what humility is. And as I said, uh, it's really simple. Uh, humble people pray uh, and arrogant people do not. And, and it really can be reduced to that. Number four, use precious time with strategic urgency in order to minimize regrets. Use precious time 
with strategic urgency in order to minimize regrets. Bible says in Psalm 90, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. One thing that you never want to do under any circumstances, you never want to watch a football game with me because I am so intense and I, 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 I scream at the television as if the coach could actually hear me and is listening to me. Like I'm really into it when I watch it. And one of my pet peeves in watching a football game is that it appears as though coaches and quarterbacks do not understand that football is a timed game. And that when you are, when you are in the fourth quarter and you have a limited amount of time, you have to call your time out quickly. You have to get out of bounds. You have to get up to the line. You have to snap the ball. And so I'm screaming, snap the ball, snap the ball, spike the ball, spike the ball. And I'm, I'm just saying, this is a timed game. One thing that we need to realize is that life is a timed game. Uh, Moses says, you're going to live to be about 70. Um, if you're strong, you're going to make it to 80. If you're north of 80, you're playing with house money at that point. But give or take, somewhere between 70 and 80, you're going to check out. And, and if a life that is between 70 and 80 is, is, is considered a vapor, so what is your life? It is, a, it is a vapor, okay? Then the amount of time that you're going to parent is even shorter than the amount of time that you're going to live. Now, let's shrink it even further. The amount of time that you actually have an influence on your children, even though they might be living at home, is microscopic. And so what you need to do is to use that time wisely. Uh, we homeschooled our children not because we were uh, afraid of the New York City public schools. Uh, we didn't do it so that they would get a better education. Probably would have gotten a better education if we'd sent them off to school because we pretty much just sat around and, and watched TV. Like, they, we didn't do that much. Uh, <laughs> And we, we didn't do it because of, of the influence of friends. That wasn't the reason we did it. The one reason, primary reason why we homeschooled our children is because we liked spending time with them and we wanted to have as much time with them as possible and have as much influence on them as possible. So my son Parker, who is now a pastor of a church in Athens, Georgia, uh, he left home when he was 16 to move to be with Anna's parents in Georgia so that he could get Georgia State residency. He left at 16. He hasn't been back. Uh, my son Charlie had just turned 17 a few days prior to moving away. Same thing with my daughter Savannah. Moved away from home at age 17. My daughter Madison moved away at age 18 to go to school, and she's the one that had stayed the longest. And so you understand that your time with your children is, is very, very short. And if you don't capitalize upon the moments in time, one day you're going to wake up like Tevia in Fiddler on the Roof, who you remember who sang at his daughter's wedding and said, is this the little girl I carried? Is this the little boy at play? I don't remember growing older. When did they? When did she get to be a beauty? And when did he get to be so tall? Wasn't it just yesterday they were small? Sunrise, sunset, swiftly flow the days. Guys, it was just yesterday. Yesterday that we brought Parker home from the hospital he is now almost 32 years old, but he was a baby yesterday. The time goes like that. So I learned this lesson again from my father. Um, back in the day, uh, vacations were not what they are now. And I can remember our family vacation in 1973 we drove from Dubois, Pennsylvania to St. Petersburg, Florida, 
Uh, it took us two days to get there. It took us two days to get back. We rode in my dad's 1968 red Oldsmobile that didn't have any air conditioning. And it was in June of 1973. And it was a really big deal for me because we got to stay in a motel, which I had never done before. And we stayed at the Empress Motel on 4th Street in St. Petersburg, Florida. And it had a pool. And I can remember the maid. Her name was Beulah Snow. And she came in our room and said, there's snow in Florida. And like, I, like it, 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 it's, it stuck with me. So here we are in this motel. I have just finished the sixth grade. And one night, uh, very innocently, you know, my, my mother and father have one bed and I have one bed. And I've just turned 12. And I said, hey, Dad, um, you want to sleep in the bed with me tonight? And my dad said, Eddie boy, you bet your life I do. I sure do want to sleep in the bed with you tonight. And I'm going to tell you why. See, here's where my father was so wise. He not only did the right thing, but he explained why he did it. He said, because the day is fast coming when you're not going to want to have your old man in the bed with you. So it would be my honor to get in the bed with you tonight. It didn't, like, like, it didn't like register to me like how important that was. I'm just like, great. And I roll over, and he gets in the bed with me, and we sleep the night. And I get up, and I go to the pool in the morning, and it's like, what is it? Yeah. It's, it's like, okay, that was great. My, you know, how cool was it that, you know, my dad slipped in the bed with me that night. Fast forward to 2002, um, I, I took my son Parker, who was 11 at the time, to Cooperstown to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, I hope you don't fail this one. You have or have not been to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Oh, it's like a really bad church. Okay, okay. I'm changing my topic for the sermon this morning, okay? And it was, it was October, the tourist season was over. We went and stayed at this place. I wouldn't call it a hotel, I wouldn't call it a motel. It was just sort of this place where you stay. And it was like, like it was long before the day of Airbnb and it was like, $59 a night, and Parker and I walk in, and lo and behold, we walk in, and there's a bedroom, and you walk through, and there's another bedroom, and then there's a living room, and then there's a bedroom, and then there's a kitchen, and then there's a bedroom, I and mean, it was this enormous place for, for both of us, and Parker says, wow, this is fantastic, we could each have our own bedroom, and I said, trip's yours, pal, like whatever you want. That night, uh, he happened to end up in the same bedroom as me. Uh, because we were uh, reading our Bible and, and uh, watching a little bit of TV. And, 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 and so, so he's in one bed and I'm in another. Uh, we finish reading the Bible, turn out the light. He knows nothing about the story of, of what happened in St. Petersburg, Florida in 1973. And the light's out, I'm getting ready to go to sleep. And he says, hey, Dad, you think it would be okay if we slept in the same bed? I said, Parker... I said, you bet your life that'll be fine. And I'm going to tell you why. Because fast is coming the day when you're not going to want to be in the bed with your old man. And so here we were in this, you know, five-bedroom apartment sleeping in the same bed. But what is the point of that? The point is you have to see that you have a microscopic, tiny, infinitesimal period of time in which your children are going to have your heart and have your ear. And when that happens, you have to capitalize on it. Conversely, here's our bedroom, here's Charlie's bedroom. Had to pass Charlie's bedroom every day and leaving. Can't tell you the number of times I would walk past. He'd be sitting on the floor and he'd say, hey, Dad, you want to play G.I. Joe's? And I would say, I do. I I really do, but I got to get to the church, or I got to get to an elders meeting, or I got to get here, or I got to get there. But but we're we're gonna have a good time then. I tell you, we're gonna have a good time then. And one day I walked in, didn't have anything to do, walked in the room and said, "Hey Charlie, you want to play GI Joe's?" And he said, "Sure." And so I reached under the bed and pulled out the bin of GI Joe's, which had about a quarter of an inch of dust on it, 
and pulled them out and were on the floor and we're kind of moving them around and I hadn't played with toys in like a long time. I said, all right, so tell me, what are we, what are we supposed to do here? And he looked at me and he said, Dad, I, I don't really play with toys anymore. And I thought, oh, okay, the time has passed and I missed it. And also, you have to consider that 17-year-olds can be so temperamental. No, uh, no, no. <laughs> But you see the difference in the two stories. The clock is not going to stop for you. Don't say to yourself, we're going to have these kids forever and we're never going to run out of time. The time is going to pass and so you need to move quickly. You need to move quickly. Number five, use sincere thanksgiving with peaceful contentment in order to teach providence. Use sincere thanksgiving with peaceful contentment in order to teach providence. Um, very quickly, what this means is it doesn't really matter what your theology is, and, and hopefully you do have good theology and you do understand Reformed theology and you do understand that God is sovereign and you can sing uh, robustly whate'er my God ordains is right and you can quote that we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him to those who are the called according to his purpose. All of your theology can be great, but when things don't go your way, <clears throat> that is when you actually teach your children whether or not you believe in the sovereignty of God. And without a fixed, deep-seated conviction that God is in control of all things and communicating that, what you're teaching your children is that God indeed is not in control, but that you are in control. And if you are not in control, you are angry about the fact that you are not in control. And it expresses itself in the form of temper and anger and impatience and complaining and fault-finding. And I would have to say that this is the area where I, as a father, uh, fell the shortest and failed the most. That the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Uh, I oft spanked my children. I never beat my children. I never threw anything at a wall. I never punched a wall or or did anything that was violent. Uh, but I was very sinfully impatient and very sinfully angry. When things didn't go my way, I felt a great liberty to express my discontent with a lot of volume and with uh, a lot of scowling and uh, just a lot of expressions of disapproval. And all it did is that it taught my children that it's okay to be angry, when in reality, it is not okay to be angry. And those who are given to outbursts of wrath will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And I would, I would like to say that I am over it and that that is completely in my past, but I know my flesh and I know the devil and I know that, uh, uh, that this is something that I am given to and that I am uh, going to be a lifelong struggler with this. But I will say, um, and thanks to the grace of God, that there was a profound difference in my life, like a marked, almost overnight change in my life with respect to this when I came to understand the importance of the cross-centered life or the little book that was written by C.J. Mahaney and that the gospel is for Christians and that the gospel informs how we live and the gospel is that which empowers us to live in gentleness and in peace. It doesn't mean that I still don't get disappointed, but it does mean that there is a, a desire in my heart to live in peace and in joy and in harmony and not feel the liberty to express myself in that way. And so what I'm saying here in this point is there's going to be times when the tire goes flat. There are going to be times when things don't work out the way that we want them to work out. Well, when that happens, the way that you teach your children good theology is by causing them to trust in the sovereignty of God, knowing that in a fallen world, 
man born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. And rather than expressing your discontentment with anger and rather than uh, blowing your top or letting everybody know that you're in a bad mood, uh, that you accept what God has given with a good attitude rather than to be, um, rather than to be angry. Moving on then very quickly to number six, use joyful hospitality without grumbling in order to demonstrate selflessness. First Peter chapter four, verse nine says, show hospitality without grumbling. Uh, let me just say this, Grace Baptist Church, uh, I can, uh, this is in my notes, uh, but I feel very strongly that what I'm about to say over the next two or three minutes is going to be uh, very redundant and not even necessary, seeing as how uh, you put other churches to shame with your hospitality. Um, and let me say, but I, w but I will put it this way. We ourselves, that is me and my wife, we also love hospitality and we exercise it very selfishly. Like we are selfish in our expressions of hospitality in that we love people and we love being around people and people are welcome in our home. But that's something that we enjoy. Like we have them there because we get something out of it. And we understand that because we live in New York City, we have friends that we otherwise would not have. If we lived in Des Moines, Iowa, people wouldn't be calling us up saying, hey, we just thought we'd come visit. No, you live in New York City, hotels are expensive. Friends that you didn't know you had call up and say, hey, we just think we'd like to come visit. We know they don't want to see us, and that's fine because we do it to other people as well. So no harm, no foul. I'm, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying we like people, we like having people in our home. And for the entirety of our married lives, we have enjoyed that. However, it's not the person that comes to visit who knows how to be a good house guest, which teaches you the importance of hospitality. It's the person that comes over and after the meal is finished and after you've had a lengthy conversation and you give that, that yawn, which you're not really yawning, but you're sort of communicating by the yawn like, all right, well, you know, thanks for coming over. And then they start into a new subject. Like, wait a minute, that was a clear nonverbal indicator that it's time for you to go. Yeah, yeah, we loved having you and we love seeing you leave now. Uh, and the person that doesn't know when it's time to go or the person who takes their, their glass that's just dripping with water and ice and puts it down on wood when there's a coaster right here. Like, why do you think that coaster is there? It's when they break something or it's when, you know what I'm saying, the, the guest that... Uh, does not know when to go home or, as it says in Proverbs, step not oft into thy neighbor's house lest he hate thee. So it's like, okay, you were just here yesterday and we had a good talk yesterday and now you're back. So glad to see you, but not really. You know, it's, the, it's, it's that, it's at that point that you teach your children, this is not our home, this is not our time, this is not our stuff, this belongs to the Lord. And so we joyfully try to show hospitality, not only when it is selfish and we enjoy having the people, but doing it to show the love of Christ, who shows hospitality to us, not, in, not only in that he invites us over to eat, but for crying out loud, he adopts us and gives us an eternal home. That is hospitality. You teach selflessness to your children by exercising hospitality. Number seven. <clears throat> All right, I don't have time to get into number seven. I'm just gonna read the point and read the verses and then you apply it as you wish and if you want to talk to me about it, we can talk to it. But here's the bottom line. To the glory of God, spank your kids. Use the chastening rod with faithful consistency in order to eradicate foolishness. 
Proverbs 22:15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14, do not withhold discipline from a child, for if you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol or the grave. Couple more, Proverbs 13, 24, Proverbs 29:15. So when Anna and I were starting off new as parents, we had no idea what we were doing with respect to discipline. And we tried every manipulative way in order to get our children to obey us. Uh, we tried the, wouldn't you like to make mommy happy? Or isn't it bad that you're making daddy sad? Or if you do this, I'll do that for you. Or we make some sort of a false threat on them, which we're not going to follow through on. They, not, they know we're not going to follow through on. And then the ridiculous one, two, I really mean it this time, two and a half, you know, counting it out. Just everything we did was just, was just horrible. Like, like, like it didn't work. And back in the day when we had Parker, we really didn't have any money. But we, we did buy him a little toy. The movie The Lion King had just come out. And Parker's favorite character was Scar, which, which, what does that say about him? But what, more so, what does that say about us as parents that we would buy that for him? But he's got this little Scar doll, and, and he's three years old, and, and he was doing something bad. And I said, Parker, don't do it again. And he keeps doing it. I said, Parker, please stop that. Don't do it again. Fourth time, third time, don't do it again. I said, fifth time, I said, Parker, if you do that again, I'm going to throw away your toy. That was like seven or eight bucks. We didn't have seven or eight bucks to throw away. Lo and behold, he does it again. Now, where am, am I, the fool here now, cutting off my nose to spite my face in order to save face with him? I have to throw away the toy, right? That'll teach him a lesson. It wasn't 90 seconds later he was doing the same thing. Why? because that doesn't work. None of those methods work. It wasn't until I read Ted Tripp's book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, that I began to discover what it is that you ought to do, and that is this. Give a command one time in a conversational tone with words that the child can understand, and if the child does not do it immediately with a good attitude, you spank them. Just, you know, I asked you to take out the garbage. Did you take out the garbage? No. Okay. Get the spoon. Meet me in the yellow room. Like, if this, was, this was like, and here's the, here's the value of it. You are not emotionally engaged at this point. There is no anger. There is no volume. There's no, there's no emotion. There's no, uh, there's, there's no rage. It's just like, I'll see you in the yellow room. Get the spoon. Took him in, explain why we're, why we're spanking him. Make sure the child knows why they're being spanked. I remember when I was a little boy, I, I was standing at the sink, and I was told to wring the cloth out. I had never heard the word ring, but it sounded like bring, and so I would bring it out, and it would drip on the floor, push it back. I said, wring the cloth out. Still don't know what the word means. I'm bringing it out. I'm getting punished for something I don't even know what I'm doing. So make sure the child knows why they're being punished. They understand. You spank them. Ours was, we just had a customary 10. Every, every time it was just 10. Like small offense, large offense, 10. And it wasn't like, it was, that was it. Did it hurt? Did it ever? Yes, it hurt. Were they injured? Never. Were they bruised? Never. Would they cry? Always. After they cry, kiss them, hug them, tell them you love them, pray with them, and then tell them, I will never spank you again as long as you obey me. And now, all of a sudden, magically, they start to listen and they start to obey. Why do you do this? Not so much because you want them to obey you so that you would have rule in your house but that you teach them to obey authority, which is something they will need for the rest of their lives. And number eight, finally, the most important point, and that is use the practical gospel 
with personal applications in order to reproduce disciples. In other words, show them how grace works. Show them how the gospel works. Folks, you teach your children everything that they do. You teach them how to drive a car. You teach them how to wash the dishes. You, you teach them how to hunt and how to fish. Everything that they do, you teach them how to do it. Does it not stand to reason that the most important thing, being the gospel, is something that they need to understand how it works? First of all, they need to understand how the gospel works in terms of what the content of the gospel is. Can't tell you the number of parents that I've known over the years that because their children went to church, that they would assume that their kids know the gospel. It's going to happen every year at Camp Impact. We'll sit down with the child. We'll ask, what is the gospel? What does it mean to be saved? They will be clueless. And they come from sometimes very good churches. They come from churches sometimes where their father is a pastor or a deacon or an elder. They don't know the gospel. So make sure your children know the content of the gospel. But then they need to understand how that gospel works, not only in terms of salvation, but also in terms of sanctification. And that, just like prayer, does not happen by you giving them lectures or speeches, although you should give them lectures or speeches and you should explain it to them. But the one way that they're going to understand how the gospel works is by you giving personal illustrations from your own life. Let's give you one example. You lose your temper. The children are around and they see it. What you need to do is you need to call a family meeting and you need to say, I just spoke to your mother harshly. I just lost my temper. That was a sin against your mother. That was a sin against God. That was a sin against you. I am wrong. I am guilty. I don't have any excuses other than the fact that I am a wicked sinner and I have sinned in front of you. But I want you to know that I've sought the forgiveness of your mother and I want you to know that I've sought forgiveness from God and now I want to ask you, my children, please to forgive me. And we believe that Jesus, through his blood, washes away our sins when we confess our sins. When you show them that you are a sinner who needs the gospel, then they will understand that the gospel works and how it works. But if a child grows up, and they only can do it for so many years, but if a child grows up saying, I am bad, I disobey, my parents tell me that I am bad, I know that I am bad, my conscience tells me that I am bad, and I do bad things, but my father and my mother never do anything bad, they are right, and they are perfect, and I am bad and I am wrong, what, what's going to happen when the child grows up one day and discovers, hey, wait a minute, my parents are sinners just like me, and all these years I've been made to think they're perfect and I'm the sinner. Here's what's going to happen. You're either going to get a child that is going to become a Pharisee, they're going to become a rule keeper, and they're going to do things to please you, not out of a new heart, not because of the power of the gospel, but because they, they know how to keep rules and they will please you. Or you will raise a child who is a hypocrite. And they will, in front of you, do things to please you, but they will have a second life, they will have a secret life, which is the real them, but they will keep a good front in front of you. They'll be, a, they'll be an actor, they'll have a double life. Or they will be wild, and they will say, listen, I, I, I can't live up to this, I'm not even going to try to live up to this, I'm just going to go hog wild for the world and for the devil, I'm sorry mom and dad, I mean, I suppose there might be something to your religion, but it's not mine, and they'll go headlong toward hell. When in reality, what you want is a disciple. What is a disciple? A disciple is someone who leans heavily upon the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, who says, I am a sinner, sin is wrong, 
But sin can be taken care of through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the way that I know that is because when I saw my father and my mother sin, they always owned sin and they always pointed me to Jesus and they always lived the gospel in front of me. So you can bring your kids to church forever. You can give them all kinds of speeches and lectures. Do whatever you want. But if you don't teach them how the gospel works in your life and how you need a savior and how you sin and how Jesus' blood cleanses you, you're not going to raise disciples. You will either raise Pharisees or hypocrites or buckwild kids that are just going headlong for hell and the devil. You need the gospel in your life in order to communicate it and raise disciples for the next generation. All right, I've gone five minutes over. I think church starts in 10 minutes. Father in heaven, please take these truths, impress them upon the people, and cause them, Lord, as is applicable to use them in their lives. In Christ's name, amen.